Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. While you're doing that, uh, we are in a series that uh, we're going to have here this this morning, and uh, then we won't have it next week. Uh, We have the Steinbarts that are going to be here, missionaries to Kenya, and uh, they'll be here in the morning service, and uh, so we will give the time to them. But uh, we have been working through, uh, and the theme this year uh, for Christmas is this hymn that we know as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is one of our oldest songs uh, in our hymnal, and uh, it is one that uh, is familiar to most people. It is kind of a mournful-sounding song. It's got the uh, kind of Middle Ages church sound that's always in a minor key. We were talking this week uh, just as pastors, and we were going, it'd be nice to have this in kind of a major key that it sounded a little more cheerful than this. It's not so mournful uh, as a Christmas song. But what we're dealing with each week is the title that is given to uh, Jesus in each one of those verses. And when it came to verse 2, I, I was thinking that the, several of the other ones, as I came to them, I thought would be a little more difficult. This one, by far, to me, has been the most difficult in my study. I'm just going to read it for you. You can find it on page 83 in your hymnal. It's uh, where it's at. But it just simply says this. O come, O come, thou Lord of might. We might, you know, paraphrase it, Almighty Lord who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the people law in cloud and majesty and awe. That's it. And then we get to the chorus, uh, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And last week we just understood the fact, hopefully, that this idea of Emmanuel is that God is with us. That's what the name literally means in the Hebrew, with us God. Uh, And that Jesus was a sign uh, to an unbelieving king, an unbelieving nation, that God could work and take care of their problems by dwelling among them. But this passage here is, to me, you're, you're going, I am not sure I would have chosen this as a prayer to appeal to God to come and do a work, to come and redeem the nation of Israel. And I had you turn to Hebrews chapter 12 because it gives commentary on what we read in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, you have the nation of Israel who has escaped uh, from the nation of Egypt. To me, uh, the Red Sea event would have been something to appeal to in the sense of rescuing and redeeming the nation of Israel, or the ten plagues that uh, were the ultimate thing that delivered them from the, the nation of Egypt. Not necessarily this event that they finally come to a place called Mount Sinai in the middle of a desert, uh, and it's a place where God chose to meet with his people. And in the midst of this, you find uh, the the people getting ready to meet their God. 
He kind of appears in one way to make it obvious that he's on this mountain and has Moses come up there. And Moses comes and there's this declaration of what God has done in delivering the nation of Israel. But then God says, okay, uh, you need to go down to the people and tell them I'm going to appear. And the people say, okay, whatever he tells us, we'll do. And so Moses goes back up and God says to him, well, I'm going to show up in visible display of my power in three days. You go down and tell the people that I'm going to show up and display my power. People get ready to sanctify themselves and go through the whole process of just ceremonially being purified. Uh, all of this to prepare to meet their God. And so on the third day, God shows up. And it's with a whole host of events that uh, we'll talk about here in a little bit. But what eventually happens is that it's not that the people are overawed with God. Some of them are, are curious. You know, they want to go running up the mountainside to see if they can go where Moses has just gone and to see the presence of God in full display inside that mountain. Uh, and God has to say, get them off the mountain. We told them not to go there. We don't want them to die. Whatever that may be. But the fact of the people when they were done, the nation of Israel, is that they were afraid of God. There was a fear of God. In fact, in the passage we read it this morning, in Exodus chapter 19, you have this statement that they go to Moses, you go and talk to God because we're afraid to hear his voice. Now, we, we don't want to get close to this God because he's a frightening God. He's an unnerving God, and I'm not sure we want to get to the point where we can hear his voice. And you get done with that, and, and the God gives his law. That's what you have in Exodus chapter 20, that he declares the Ten Commandments, which are, understand what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are God declaring what he's like, and if these people are going to be his people and say, yes, we believe in this God and we trust in him, they ought to reflect in their lives what this God is like. It wasn't a way of actually approaching God. It was a way of displaying that you had already come to God, that you were putting your faith and trust in him and this display. But really the whole idea that this Lord of might uh, would come down and deliver the nation of Israel, when you read the story, the nation of Israel is frightened by this God. And for many different reasons. We've come to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, and what Hebrews chapter 12 does is go, that's not quite the God you want to meet. I mean, he, he is a God that you can trust in all of these type of things, but, but the way that the nation of Israel viewed that God is a, is a God of judgment, not necessarily of joy and peace. And Hebrews uh, chapter 12, this whole incident of the Lord appearing in great might is explained and illustrated as the life that you don't necessarily want to view God from. There's a different way to view your God and the way that he's able to deliver. And I want us to, to start this passage off in Hebrews chapter 12 and understand Hebrews is written, okay, just get a background here in this book. Hebrews is written to Hebrews, or we would call them Jews. Jews who had 
come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. These are some of his first converts. Remember that the church at Jerusalem was filled with Jews. And the early church initially was filled with a whole bunch of Jews. And these are ones who initially accepted the message of Jesus Christ that he died to save people from their sins. But it was very quick and swift, the reaction to that. The religious leaders weren't going to have this Jesus upset the balance of their temple and the religious worship that they had. They weren't going to let that happen. And so they start sending out uh, their, their dogs to go after people. You go, who is one of those dogs that's going after these people? Saul. He's a Pharisee. And he's going like a wild animal. And he's dragging people out of their homes. Didn't matter if they were women or old or children or men. It didn't matter. He's hauling them off to prison and waiting for them to be executed. That, that's his desire. Because these are people he feels like have turned their back on the whole nation of Israel. And what you had was that people who were followers of Jesus Christ are being told by their family, come back to the old way of life. Come back to the family traditions that we had. Come back to the law. Come back to the the, uh, practices that we have because it'll be so much better for you. And what the author of Hebrews does in a very orderly fashion, taking passages of Scripture, and basically uh, the book of Hebrews is a series of sermons on certain Old Testament verses. The writer takes a verse and he preaches a whole section on this and comes to the conclusion, Christ is better than... You can go through. He's better than angels. He's better than any man. He's better than any law. He's better than Moses. He's better than any temple or any sacrifices. He's better than any priest. And you get done and you understand that Christ is better than anything that you had in the Old Testament or what came out of the Old Testament as far as the Jewish religious belief, which was an error. Uh, All of those things, Christ is better. And he does this through the first 11 chapters. And in chapter 12, you're coming to the conclusion. This is the section where it's the highlight, the end point, because you get to Hebrews chapter 13, he's just kind of dealing with some secondary issues. It's not really the main issues. It's take care of this and do this and that. It doesn't deal with the whole argument. This is the concluding statement of this person, the author of Hebrews, arguments of going, Christ is better. You'd rather have him than the law. Because the law doesn't deliver, someone does by the name of Christ, by the name of Jesus, and he's much better. And and in closing this passage, you find that in verse number 18, the writer starts with this story. Verse 18, he's writing to Jewish Christians. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they heard that they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more verse 20 for they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much as a beast touched the mountain and it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart and so terrible was the sight that Moses said i exceedingly fear and quake What you have here is that 
you have this God that is announced in this song as the Lord of might, but when you read initially the idea of coming to Mount Sinai, you get this understanding that the approach to God through the law is terrifying. To try and approach God through the law is terrifying. And what you have here is this picture of Sinai. Sinai in this passage pictures the old Mosaic Covenant and uh, all of this free access to Mount Sinai was denied. You couldn't get directly to the presence of God. It was a picture and illustration that you couldn't come to God uh, however you wanted and you couldn't just approach him. Uh, That was the illustration that was here. Mount Sinai was terrifying because of God's awesomeness and holy presence and those who transgressed the boundaries were threatened by God's judgment. Now what you see here is that there's this statement that begins in verse number 18, for you're not come unto. Now this is a favorite word of the writer of Hebrews, the idea of coming to something, being at something, approaching something. He's used this to describe the fact that you can approach, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, you can approach the throne of grace and find mercy to help in time of need. You have that. Or you have that in Hebrews 7, verse 25, that people are saved by coming to God through Jesus Christ, that you can approach God through Jesus. Or the sacrifice required by law can never perfect or save those that are coming to God. Hebrews 10, verse 1, so you can't come to God by sacrifices given by human hands. Uh, The readers are to come to God with a true heart and full assurance, Hebrews 10 and verse 22. Those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, right out of the hall of faith. The Apostle, or I'm going to say Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, I kind of believe Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. I'm trying to go back to the the author uh, here because we don't have a clear statement of who it is. But when this is being written here in verse number 18, we're not come, okay, Christians don't come to this. We're not coming to a mountain like Sinai when we approach our God. I mean, for the nation of Israel, it was a terrifying experience. And and the writer of Hebrews just goes through what it would have been like to be there at that event and it would have been an incredible event, one of the, the, the greatest events in human history to take place where God appears and shows up visibly in all of his power displayed there on one mountain. And this description is this, is that this mountain burned with fire. It was scorched. As one has said this, it was scorched and torched. I mean, it is not just a volcano. The whole mountain's on fire. And you have this, that there, along with this, it's, it's not only that you have fire here and you said it must have been exceptionally bright. No, there was a cloud there. It talks about extreme darkness coming from this mountain. The cloud that came down there, there's gloom, there's a storm. You have thunderings and lightnings that are coming out of this cloud that is there that is a part of the whole display. You have trumpets that are blaring blasting getting louder and louder and louder 
Sort of like you, you, every Tuesday, the first Tuesday of the month at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, you have the sirens that go off. And it takes them a little bit to churn up as they spin and you get them as you get it louder and louder and then they get softer and softer. Uh, we live right across the train tracks from one. Our cats just love it the, the first Tuesday of the month. But imagine having trumpets that are trumpets that god has and they are getting louder and louder and louder and you can just imagine the people in awe and some of them have their hands over the ears uh, as they hear this and then that's not the only thing that's there you have the voice of god i mean this is one of the few occasions where you have a whole nation of people that hear the voice of god speak not through a prophet not through somebody else it's the voice of god when you hear the statement in, in the book of revelation what that's like it's described as the voice as christ is speaking the voice of many roaring waters we're talking not just a mere waterfall we're talking a bunch of niagara fall type of waterfall sounds all in one and when you think about the voice of God, the psalmist actually does talk about what it would be like to hear the voice of God. Psalm 29, verse 1 says this, Give ye unto the Lord, all ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give the glory, the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then it says this about the voice of the Lord. Okay, what is the voice, the impact that the voice of God has? It's this, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon many waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. And you go, big deal, what's that? The cedars were the strongest wood that could be found for any product. And this is what the, the Temple of Solomon is partially constructed with, is the cedars of Lebanon because it was the most choice uh, uh, type of wood you could get. The voice of God breaks those. The voice is able to do this. He makes the, the, the also to uh, make it them to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian are like the young unicorn. What it's talking about there is it's talking about the mountains of Lebanon are actually shaking at the voice of God. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the winds to calf. He discovers force. In his temple does everyone speak of his glory. And it says this, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yes, the Lord is king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with, and it's an unusual thing to end with, he'll, he'll bless his people with peace. I mean, that passage there is all about the voice of God, the power that it has. And here you have the nation of Israel that is standing around this mountain by all the 12 tribes that are there, and they're seeing this power, they're hearing the blaring of uh, these horns, and they have the voice of God speaking. I don't think we can come even close to imagining what that would have been like for them to experience that. But that wasn't the most difficult thing to come out of this. This is what, as you get through, 
that these individuals are hearing the voice in verse 19 that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore what is the most bothersome thing to them is the words that are being spoken to them they can't handle them they acknowledge by their saying we don't want to hear these words because we can't handle them moses you go talk to god they're acknowledging by their actions that they can't keep the commandment of god they can't keep any of the words of god i mean there is a fear of this i mean for them they realize that if they broke these commands it would be death i mean that was simply the only commands that were given get ready for the lord to appear and don't cross those border lines but if you cross the border lines you cross over a boundary you're not supposed to cross over what would it bring death I mean, it's a picture of the fact that what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. It's the stepping over of a boundary line. And in stepping over a boundary line, what is that? That's sin. And what does sin do? Sin bringeth what? Death. I mean, even in the picture there on Mount Sinai of the power and the people going, we can't handle the words of God and the words that they do receive and the commands that they do receive, the punishment for failing to follow those things or breaking those things is death. Even Moses himself in Hebrews here, it says this in verse number 21. It says that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Seems to be a quote of uh, Moses from the book of Deuteronomy about the event here and the events here that in the presence of God, even he was shaken by what went on. See, what became to the nation of Israel their key thing where God at the Mount Sinai gives all these commandments eventually by the time we get to the end of the old testament and into the new testament the nation of israel has latched on to these words and said listen we can approach god if we just simply do what was given to us at mount sinai and they were missing the fact that no that display of power is to help you to understand this is a god who has the power and ability to judge and if you're going to approach God through the law, as Mount Sinai is pictured throughout the New Testament, is the picture of the law. If you're going to approach God through the law, what you're going to find him to be is your judge. And you don't want him to be your judge. It's a fearful thing, as it says earlier on in this passage. In Hebrews chapter 12, earlier on, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a angry God. A God that you've offended. A God that you have crossed the boundary lines that he said, don't cross those boundary lines. This picture that Mount Sinai is a God of power. Yes, he is a God of power. But the picture is this. He's got the power to judge. And you get to the end of the passage here in Hebrews chapter 12, or 13. We haven't read this yet, or Hebrews 12, excuse me. In verse 29, it says this, For our God is a... How does it describe Him? 
a consuming fire. So if you're looking at God and going, I like the God of Sinai, uh, and He's going to come and deliver me, and this is the God there. No, it's a picture of God's judgment. It's the wrong way to approach God. You can't approach Him through the law. You'll find Him to be your judge. He's a frightful God if you're going to approach Him the wrong way. And so for us, in this statement that we want to, and the O come, O come, Emmanuel is almost ironic that they're using that passage to say, come in your power. I mean, if they're saying, come and judge the nations who disobey God, okay, that's one thing. But understand this, that's, that's not how we approach God. For us, uh, the approach to God through the law is terrifying. However, what uh, the writer then states is this, is that to approach God through Jesus is joyous. It's not frightening. In fact, the display of God's power is something to encourage when you look at Jesus and come through Jesus. And I want you to look at verse number 22. It says this, Okay, we're not come to Mount Sinai if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. No, what you've come to, verse 22, is this. You've come to Mount Zion or Zion. Now, for us, you go, what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the hill upon which the city of Jerusalem rests. It's got several hills that are there, but this is one of the hills that uh, Jerusalem is on. And the statement is this, that you've come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not talking about the earthly Jerusalem here. If you're saved, you're approaching a heavenly Jerusalem where God's display of power is given. To angels innumerable comp- or to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better uh, things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. But we have is this statement that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not coming to that terrifying scene at Mount Sinai. What you're coming to is this joyous and bright and glorious scene that you find in heaven. There you find uh, the different uh, things that go on here, but ultimately this is the residence of God. God lives here. God dwells in heaven. It's his place. It's his dwelling place. You find the fact that uh, Zion is God's holy mountain, and from this city, the Messiah will rule. And what's the description of this heavenly city like? Well, you find these statements that it's heavenly. Okay, its origins aren't here of earth created by mankind. No, it's heavenly. It's created by God. That there you find innumerable angels and you stand you say well what does this mean Uh, the angels are part of the festivities that are going on it's like you have a large parade or ceremony of festival activities and the angels are the ones that are leading in the worship and every time you see angels in the book of revelation not all the time but it seems like they're leading in a great course a great song of praise to God that there is this festive kind of feeling and the angels are a part of this. It's a joyous sound that you find here. And there you find, it says this, the assembly. 
the general assembly and church of the firstborn you go well who is this talking about well the firstborn was a title given to the nation of israel when they came out of egypt in exodus chapter 4 they're called the church and assembly in deuteronomy chapter 4 and 10 and chapter 18 and verse 16 Uh, but however the term is oftentimes updated to the church the word is assembly but the question is who are the firstborn well I tell you this, it's those that have believed. You find in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, talking about the fact that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. It says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's talking there about people who have believed. And God just simply says this, They've been saved to live like the one who was the firstborn amongst many brethren to be like their chief brother Christ, to be like him, to be transformed like him. And these are individuals who are enrolled, uh, as it says here in verse number 22, or excuse me, 23. These are individuals who are enrolled, or as it says this, which are written in heaven. Do you realize a person who has been saved has their name written down in glories you might uh, the one hymn uh, describes it when you think about this luke chapter 10 and verse 20 says this notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven or Philippians 4.3, the Apostle Paul making a statement to the church at Philippi, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers, whose names are in the, and he describes it this way, are written in the book of life. You realize an individual who's saved has their name etched in a book that's called the Lamb's Book of Life. That is what allows an individual to be in this heavenly place. So you have individuals, it's almost this way, that they're enrolled in heaven. They're safe. Their name's written down. They are a citizen written down. You see here that there's God who is the judge of all. Now you do have to remember, there's God who we're able to come in the presence of and have joy. You have to realize this, that he just doesn't merely cast aside the fact that he's judge. But God delights in having believers with him and people fellowship with him. That's what his delight is, even though he still has to judge. And you see that balance as you go through the book of Revelation. You see this balance of God fellowshipping with his people and delighting to be with them. And yet you still have this judgment that's taking place. But you get to the end and God's delighting in the end with all those that are with him forever. You find also that uh, you have these individuals who are dead that are justified. Uh, You find this, the souls of just men made perfect at the end of verse 23. Uh, These are individuals probably talking about Old Testament saints who are saved the same way as we are. They're justified, not by works, but by faith. They're saved they're a part of the things that go on in heaven but ultimately you get here and you get to heaven and the one who makes it possible for us to be there is in verse 24 jesus the mediator of a new covenant i haven't talked about this yet mount sinai when the 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 covenant or the deal was cut with the nation of israel it was known as the mosaic covenant or as you read in your bible the old covenant 
a covenant that had no ability to save. It just was a, merely a schoolmaster to bring men to Christ, to, to bring them to the point where they realize there's no way to possibly please God by this. Is there another solution? And you would come to Christ. Here you have Jesus, who's the mediator of a new covenant. You go, what's this new covenant? It is a covenant that a person can come to God and approach God. Through an individual who's already made a sacrifice, who's lived a sinless life. He's the mediator because he's the one who arranged the piece of, or the, the, the sacrifice, and yet he's also the one who offered the sacrifice of himself. He's the go-between that makes it possible for God not to be angry with individuals, but be happy with them and delighting in them. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the go-between. And so you think about this, if you're afraid of who God is, well, there's Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, and He's the one who claims you as His, his, his relatives, as brothers and sisters, and He will not deny you. He's there in the presence of God. You have nothing to fear her. And it's because of the sacrifice that He made on a cross that was able to save and you say, how, or what's the final statement there? You have the statement that Jesus is the mediator, verse 24, of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling. You had to have a sacrifice in order to seal a covenant. In Genesis chapter 24, at the end of God making all sorts of statements to Moses at Mount Sinai, uh, you have this agreement where an animal is, uh, blood is shed because there's a deal being cut. And Moses, it says this about that first old covenant, that Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant, which is the things that God had just declared. He read it in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. See, there was an agreement made there. Yes, we'll have you be our God and we'll be your people and we'll do whatever you say. Guess what? Over and over again, the nation of Israel proved this wrong. And you say, why did they go to judgment? Because they made a promise, a blood promise, that they would follow whatever God said and they were under the judgment of God in the old covenant. But guess what? The new covenant... It doesn't require anything on our part because the sacrifice is made by Jesus Christ. All we have to do is merely cling to the blood of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place, that he sealed his agreement, that a person can come into the presence of God through him. And he did it by the shedding of his own blood. He seals the covenant. He seals the agreement that is made. And what we're coming to is not, to, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of God. You shouldn't be frightened by God. Though at times, if we're doing things that we shouldn't be, there should be some element of fear that you're going to still have to stand before Him, not in deciding your salvation, but just simply in review of how you lived your life that God gave you. That, that is very clear from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We still have to do that. But the fact is, we shouldn't fear God in the way that the world fears God. He is one, as, a, as a statement was made uh, there, that these people were frightened by coming to God uh, there at Mount Sinai. But what he, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have no reason to fear God. 
because you have a mediator, a go-between, Jesus Christ, the righteous, whose blood seals the covenant. You are safe in the presence of God. There's nothing to fear. And you say, well, how do people get saved? By the power of God. Do you realize that it was more impressive, not the event at Mount Sinai, with all of that spectacular sight of the smoke and the fire and the lightning and all of these things, or Jesus Christ dying and being able to save people who are eternally separated from God, which required more power? Romans 1 makes it very clear that the power of God is displayed in the fact that he was able to raise his son from the dead. You want to see what God's power is like? You don't necessarily have to look at Mount Sinai to see it. You just have to simply look at the fact that Jesus rose someone who was dead to give them life eternal, and that's what he's going to do for every individual that comes to him through Jesus Christ. That's the greatest power ever displayed in the universe. That God can save sinners and do this for eternity. And in that power, that there is comfort, not terror, to approach God. And the challenge that you see at the end of Hebrews chapter 12 is just simply this. Don't refuse Jesus Christ. Don't ignore him. Verse 25, it says this, see that you refuse him not that speaketh. For they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth. How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, but heaven also. He's just simply saying, here's the one who's going to come someday, and he's the Savior, but he's also going to come as judge. If you want to refuse the one who died on the cross, he's going to come one day as your judge. It's not just merely a God who's at Mount Sinai whose noise and, and the, the, the statements made there and the signs that were there, uh, and it's a frightful thing there. No, here's you've got one who's spoken from heaven. Christ came, and Hebrews 1 talks about this, that he was sent by God after many diverse prophets and prophecies. God finally said, let me send my son to the one who's from heaven to declare what I'm like and show what I'm like. And the scripture just simply says, you ignore him, there's no hope for you. You turn away from him, no hope. But if you cling to him, you come to him, there's hope, there's joy, there's no fear. And you see this, uh, verse 28, wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You go, well, why do I serve God now? Because I'm saved. Not because I'm frightened of God. Not because I'm worried that He's going to strike me down. No, I now serve Him because He saved me. He's made all the difference in my life by His power to change me eternally. And now what I do simply do is that I serve Him because He's done so much for me. And so for us, I, I tend, to, tend to want to change that verse in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel not so much the lord of might displayed at mount sinai no it's the lord of grace and power displayed in his son who died in mount jerusalem and mount sinai or excuse me mount zion who died there and gave his life i want that kind of power i mean that's that's the power that the apostle paul in philippians said that i might know him and the power of his resurrection 
The Apostle Paul wanted to understand that kind of power and see that kind of power displayed in his life. Uh, and for us, it's not so much the power of Sinai we're looking for. It's the power of the cross and the resurrection that brings us hope that we ought to look to and go, that is my hope. Yes, come and redeem the nations and come and save uh, people from their sins. That's the kind of power we ought to be looking for. We have a good God. If you're on the opposite side where you're saying, I can impress God with who I am, he's a frightful God. You'll never impress him. He's unimpressible. I guess we could put that term in there. God can't be impressed by anybody. Our works aren't going to impress him because we fail over and over again. He'll be your judge. But if you've come to Jesus Christ, you have reason to rejoice and delight in the great power magnified through Jesus Christ on the cross. He's the one who can redeem that Savior that was on the cross. And we ought to look to that power, not so much the power of Mount Sinai, even though it's the same God, but that's the God who's judging not the God who is saving. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we're no longer living under the law. The law is burdensome. The law is frightening because there is no hope for us in that. There's always failure presented to us when we try and keep the law. Lord, if there's an individual here today that's thinking that they're going to somehow impress their way into the presence of God, may they be frightened by this God and realize that they are under His judgment. That there's no hope for them. That that Mount Sinai is something for them to just get a picture of how frightening the judgment of God could be like. And may individuals that are like that that are here today, may they see that there's a different kind of power that is displayed by God and it's displayed in Jesus Christ on the cross who took sins upon him, the failures of mankind over and over and over again repeated. He took those sins and took the punishment for those sins on the cross. And yet he rose again to show that that kind of sin has no power over him. And that we can have that if we just simply trust in this Jesus who died in our place. There's much joy in, with individuals that know the Savior. Much delight, much happiness. And so Lord, if there's one that doesn't know Christ as Savior, may they realize they need that sacrifice of Jesus to experience the power that brings joy and happiness forevermore. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Son who by his death and his shed blood made it possible for us to one day be in your presence forever and not be frightened, but to delight, to join the course of heaven in praising you in all of your power and glory. And we thank you in the name of the Son. Amen.